0: This is Shift Run Stop. It's um, a fun podcast about games and cultural stuff and comedy and interviews. Yeah, what have you been doing? You went to the
1: New Forest. Did you stroke the pony? I
0: did actually, yeah, it's great. I went. To, we went to the deer park bit, yeah. deer reserve, and um, there weren't many deer bravely for looking out in the open, but we did see one. Mm. And a few sort of just feral ponies wandering around.
1: <laughs> That's not how they advertise them to do They're
0: quite tame. For feral ponies, they are quite tame.
1: Tame is a nicer word than feral, though, isn't
0: it? Yeah, but... Yeah, it's a nicer word, but I think that's why I don't use it.
1: But feral, in my mind, conjures up images of red eyes, yeah. foaming mouths, <laughs> <Yeah. and laughs> sharpened claws. These
0: panthers are still tame,
1: even though they've got Wild and tame at the same time. Or
0: at least they were tame when I saw them. They might mm-hmm. have a sort of a hunter instinct about them. Since <laughs> your back
1: was turned, they were maybe plotting against you.
0: They, well, they herd together, don't they? It's safety in numbers. Yeah. Which is quite intimidating in a way. I did read a bit about horse behaviour on the internet. Mm-hmm. It was quite interesting. They separate themselves into quite small
1: groups, okay.
0: like four or five, and they rather than being sort of dominated by a stallion, it's a, a mare who's mm-hmm. like the head of the tribe. Oh, yeah. She keeps them all in order. A
1: matriarchal society. Yeah,
0: it is. Yeah, which I quite like. And, cool. and uh, someone else I know who sort of looks at who keeps horses. Um, he was telling me that horses like women more than men, and, and maybe that's why because they're used to the matriarch. Telling them what to do.
1: They like the, the lady smell.
0: Maybe, yeah, that all female mammals have. <laughs>
1: yeah. Perhaps. <laughs> a shared smell. Yeah. An, an odour.
0: We, we all smell like horses in some levels. Oestrogen. Yes, maybe that's what it is. And, um, and you live quite near the New Forest, don't you? I family. do. I like the New Forest, yeah. yeah.
1: In fact, I, um, I, I might have a recording of me, uh, I don't know whether I've still got this, but yeah, I might have a recording of me walking up to a pony. Oh, with this so cool. very MP3 recorder held in front of its little nose.
0: <laughs> what did it do? Did it try and eat it?
1: No, it was eating grass at the time, so there's quite a nice noise of it tearing grass out of the ground.
0: Oh, let's, if you can find that, willing to include that that there's pigs and stuff as
1: well. I've seen Those pigs, yeah, yeah, sort of yeah. semi semi wild. I'm sure they're owned, but they're they're allowed to you know roam roam mm. broadly. Yes, and then roam I mean, free. this is the
0: thing: like if you have a pony and, and it's a New Forest pony, so you're legally allowed to release it into the New Forest. Right? Will you ever find it again, or is it just yeah. does it just contribute to the pool of ponies that you can then just go and help yourself to another one anytime? Like, like
1: bikes in Cambridge.
0: Yeah, or like yeah, or like. Um, Like cups cups in a kitchen or something. Mm -hmm. You bring your own cup and then you just leave it. And then you can take any cup because
1: your cup was there. Or or can you? Depends on the etiquette of the 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 kitchen involved. Some kitchens, you might be expected to use the same cup.
0: Although, let's not stretch the cup thing too far. Well, with a pony, (laughs) you
1: could tie a piece of string to it. (laughs) And then, if you ever wanted to know what it was, you just follow the string <laughs> to get back to the pony again and it's it would have a GPS a, tracker on it but the string uh, gives the advantage that people would know oh this isn't my coloured but string I'll leave that pony uh, right, that, that looks like it's somebody else's pony
0: yeah that's good I'm surprised it doesn't have more <laughs> <laughs>
1: This week we have with us Chris Cleve, the author, the storyteller, the journalist, the writer... The father. The man.
0: <laughs> the phenomenon. <laughs>
1: Hello Chris. Hello. Lovely to meet you.
0: You've got two boys, haven't you? Um, yeah, two boys and
1: garden. a girl.
0: Oh, and a girl as well? Yeah, yeah. Ah. Um, she... A baby girl. She's oh, nine right. months
2: old uh-huh. and uh, the boys are three years old and six years old. Right. So yeah, it's a good, uh, it's a good bunch.
0: Mm.
2: And it's like having, um, you know, a six year old is very empirical. You know, they mm. want data. <laughs> so always asking brilliant questions, like, not necessarily that make complete sense. So mm. I have one from my six-year-old, what is Barry Cryer? <laughs> that was this That's morning. a great question. He was on the Today programme. Like, what is what Barry, Barry Cryer? <laughs> and then you've got your three-year-old, who is just absolutely irrational, he just wants to play the whole time and he will be something else every three seconds Mm. i'm a tiger actually i'm not i'm buzz light yeah actually i'm barry the bee um, (laughs) is this
0: because they're because their personality is different or do you think by the time you get to six you become really um data mad
2: i think you become a little scientist when you're six and Mm. i've been quite interested observing them in this idea that well children really are scientists. And they were probably Mm. the original scientists. Mm -hmm. I mean, as an adult, you're very unlikely just to poke your finger in a hole (laughs) (laughs) and see what happens. But as a kid, you're very unlikely not to. Mm. And I can't help thinking that it must in some way have been children who helped us discover our world and Mm. who always sort of pushed the adults around them through these serendipitous discoveries to find stuff out. Mm. It's amazing watching a six-year-old. They're really, you know, they're constantly probing and asking questions. Yeah, I think it's the age. And Mm. do you think
1: that in in that gap somewhere between three and six is the age when kids start to realise that, gosh, the world isn't entirely random and, and full of strangeness, actually. Things are predictable in that if I do this this happens and if I do this again similar things happen so maybe they start to build patterns but I wonder if a three-year-old just doesn't have those concepts of, of predictability or repeatability
2: I think three-year-olds are almost in a state of animism <laughs> I think they they don't even know what's alive and what isn't sure and yeah I mean I, I think you're right I think that by by six um, they're doing pattern matching and they're looking for associations mm-hmm. and you can you can almost see the little nodes in their head getting <laughs> yes. trained to to stimulate and getting yeah and predicting that okay well that that car came past and I heard the sound of it. And saw the sight of it at pretty much the same time. I bet that'll happen next sure, year. Mm. three-year-old looks at the car and he thinks, "God, that's really a dragon, probably. <laughs> <laughs> you know, probably a unicorn." Yeah. <laughs> Just—it's amazing to see that transition between this, these magical beings that mm. really are the projection of some huge, multi-dimensional magic thing into a little three-year-old <laughs> monster that you're suddenly in charge of. And then, and then suddenly, you know, I wouldn't say so much the magic goes, but they become yeah, little adults and they mm. become predictable to us mm. as the world becomes predictable to them. Mm. Sure. Um, and then, yeah, so managing that transition is very rocky sometimes mm. and involves answering um, yeah, a lot of questions like, what is Barry Crow? <laughs> 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 we were all in the UK in really deep snow, right? And we, were, we lived just outside London. Um, it was colder out there. And I found this lump. There was a lump in the garden. You know, I hadn't seen our, uh, our three-year-old for a little while, and he will do these strange <laughs> things, like creating burrows for himself. In other words, I, had, you know, I hadn't seen him for half an hour, so I thought I'd better go and check. And uh, there were even little footprints leading out to it, so I thought this could be quite serious, potentially. And um, it's just one of a thousand alarms that you have every day with a little boy like that. And, you know, I dug around a bit, and I found a what I can only describe as a capsule there. It's this sort of silver thing, a silver foil-wrapped lemonade bottle, as it turned out. Inside, there were these two perspex eggs with tiny sort of embryonic plastic aliens in them that i um, Sorry, that Santa had uh, <laughs> given to the kids for Christmas. And um, so... They were very worried. These were alien eggs and mm. they were marketed as such and they came out and they would very realistic. Tiny little bug-eyed aliens mm. in these perspex eggs. And uh, I really thought no, no more of it. I thought the kids would really love that. And they'd been slightly worried about them, it turns out. And they, we hadn't seen them playing with them, but it's true. <laughs> and it turns out they were a bit worried and they thought that, you know, they were eggs. Um, so the three-year-old and the six-year-old, being between them, slightly magical and slightly empirical, <laughs> decided that these things would probably hatch, <laughs> and that central heating was probably the worst thing for them. You know, that we were incubating the damn things, and and. and you know, with unforeseen consequences for the rest of us living in the house. So what they'd done originally, they'd taken them out into the garden and just buried them in the snow in order to sort of halt the incubation process <laughs> just to freeze them <laughs> in that state. Yeah, it's terrific. That was really good thinking. And Then they decided that that was a bit cruel. Because at the end of the day, children have huge solidarity for each other. And it Mm. turns out that that's not just sort of transgender and transracial, but it's also trans species (laughs) and interplanetary solidarity. And they like, well, these are little Martian babies. We can't leave them in the snow. So they brought them back in, built a space rocket for them out of the lemonade bottle and the tin foil. My three-year-old had sort of drawn pictures of planets and stars on a sort of cardboard nose cone, which they'd sellotaped onto Aww. the thing, put the aliens inside with a note from my six-year-old, and it said, you know, Dear aliens, you cannot live here with us. We hope you will enjoy your home planet, Mars. <laughs> and sent that was them like, back on their way. Sent them back. <laughs> put them in the garden to be... <laughs> To be launched back to the heavens by unknown forces. So have you I mean?
1: revealed to your kids that you've discovered the, uh, well, the aliens is, still in the garden? Or this that a huge about?
2: dilemma. I mean, what do you tell them? So on the one hand, you, okay, you want to level with them, and it's very important to tell kids the truth like, mm. all the time. Except when it isn't. <laughs> because after all, Santa does exist. And, you know, it's no more of a stretch, really, to say that, you know well, Santa brought you these alien eggs. Mm. And yes, then they did mystically ascend back into the heavens in your rocket. Um, which is ultimately what we did. We made a scorched patch on the lawn. <laughs> I, I, tipped a, <laughs> I tipped methylated spirits out into a circle and we literally made a sort of burned-off patch of grass. Clem and I, my wife, she... We, we told them mum that we'd seen a heard a loud roar in the night and looked out and seen this sort of tower of fire going into space. They were very pleased. They didn't you know, they didn't think twice about it. They were like, Yep. You know
1: <laughs> and the next question was, you know, cornflakes or yeah. toast. Brilliant. For practice. ten years that will be with them. That's you know, that's now part of their understanding of the world. <laughs> <laughs> it will never occur to them to doubt <laughs>
2: it. I'm in computers. I'm in
3: maze.
1: Dave. Hello. Dave Dave from the internet's with us. Hi. Hello. Now, we, we've we got, in the can, mm-hmm. from last time we recorded, we've got the second half of a decade in snacks oh that's a relief and it's funny but I think we might not use that this week we might instead interrupt our normal broadcast to bring breaking news from the world of the world of chocolate
3: Yeah. yes I, I, I apologise listeners who thought that I was because inexplicably I, I rant on and on about Cadbury. you do I think last time and then with, without any reference to the fact that the company had just been bought by craft and the country was up in arms about it and I was going oh yeah that, that of course was the champagne crunchy um, but obviously We'd recorded just before the news. I yeah, I uh, that Dave's
0: worried about appearing flippant in his reviews. <laughs> <in his laughs>
3: but I like to think, in a way, <laughs> listening back to my ill informed Cadbury's uh, ramblings, um, in a way, I think I'd identified one of the problems with Cadbury. A key structural issue. Uh, yeah, in that Cadbury, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no analyst, but. <laughs> Cad- I thought you were. Cadbury's. Cadbury's in the previous. I'm, a, I'm an amateur analyst. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> amateur <laughs> confectionery analyst. Um, Cadbury's you know just just taking the, the, the past 10 years uh, into account Cadbury's had, had, hadn't really done a great job of diversifying their portfolio again you know I don't want to come across as the uh, the Jeremy Clarkson of confectionery or do I <laughs> Cadbury's I think has always been perceived as kind of women's chocolate cool. yeah <laughs> no 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 I'm throwing out some political incorrectness they have some products that are kind of successful with kids like like the, the fudge and the, and the Freddo mm-hmm. um, but really I think Cadbury's Cadbury's cheap target market is 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 costing you know your luxury indulgence is the flake, the caramel, the Dairy Milk. Possibly the fruit and nut, and the and, the, yeah. and Layla, help yeah. me out. Are these not aimed at the latter of the fleet? They are the flame? No, you're quite right. Yeah. Uh, Mars, I I, I I consider the man's chocolate because really? it, it has Mars. It, it has Mars bar. Has Snickers. Yorkie is that Mars brand? <laughs> No, that's Nestle. Oh, okay. So well, no, and Nestle, Nestle introduces a, a... Nestle's the sort of the bi the trans Nestle, and well, yeah, and people are, people are sort of uh, banging on about craft buying Cadbury and going, oh no. I hope this means, or uh, like, I hope this means that they will do it. a Dairy Milk chocolate orange, mm-hmm. or or a Dime bar, or a Dairy Milk Toblerone. I don't know what that would mm-hmm. be like. These are the main brands that uh, that that Craft is known for. And cheese slices. Yeah, cheese slices, of course. Will Craft uh, do lots of different products based on Cadbury's things? Yeah. I don't know. I think may, may, like Cadbury's problem was always that they, they never really got past dairy milk, and if they did anything that wasn't that well associated with the, with the dairy mm. milk brand, it confused people. Mm. And they um,
0: albatross.
3: so you know, and they have these kind of um, uh, what they call like the Mars bar and, and Snickers. They're, sometimes they're referred to as meal replacement bars because the kind of thing people have as a, mm. like a, uh, instead of instead of a quick lunch. And Cadbury's have those, like the double-decker and um, something else. Boost. Boost. If if I haven't had lunch, I'll need to boost. There we go, you see. Cadbury's have those, but they don't really position them as very masculine products because... They, I think maybe they're afraid. They're afraid of upsetting women, <laughs> or I, I think they're aware of the, of, of the fact that cabri is a very popular brand amongst women, yeah. and therefore they don't want to dilute it. So it's 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 complicated as well as sexist. But um, <laughs> so your your big predictions
1: then for a craft owned cabri. Mm-hmm. would be, what, more diversification, more masculinisation? Or will, will they try and shy away will from Well, they it?
0: put more cheese in things. Yeah, <laughs> that's cheese that's and be cheese chocolate crossovers we can look forward to. I was going to say fondue, but that's not really cheese and chocolate, is it? It could it's be, cheese no, and have, sweet things. You could have a
1: starter and a, and a dessert course
0: yeah I can imagine yeah. craft doing do you, a dinner do party do see
3: this happening a kind of a, a multiple no I'm going to confidently roll that out I'm going to say cheese and, cheese and chocolate you know uh, like craft, craft are an enormous and, and terrifying multinational but they're not they're not going to successfully combine cheese and chocolate in, in that way That that's madness <laughs>
1: Can we talk about your books? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Both books now are being made or have been made into films. Yeah. We should probably say what they are, I guess, for people who, yeah. who maybe don't already know. So the first one was called Incendiary.
2: Yeah. Incendiary came out in 2005 okay. um, and uh, my second book, The Other Hand, uh, which is called in the UK and Little B as it's called in the US and Canada. Uh, came out in 2008 but yeah incendiary is the story about uh, a mother and her son and she loses her son and her husband in a terrorist attack on mm. London and uh, the it was an imagined terrorist attack and I guess the question I was asking is you know what if we had a 911 like mm. incident in London uh, in what ways would we react in a similar fashion to the way America reacted Mm -hmm. to Mm 9-11 and in what way would the British reaction be different and what would that say about um, the way we live Mm -hmm. on these islands as opposed to the way that they live in the States. What a terrorist attack does, I think, is that it works on existing fault lines in society. I mean, if a society is weak, um, a traumatic Mm -hmm. event will will expose that weakness, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. So it's quite an interesting way to write about um, Britain. It's a bit of a cursed book, you know, it was, um, it was about an attack on London and it was published on the 7th of July 2005. Was it really? Yeah. Whoa. So, you know, what are the odds? It was, uh, it wow. was terrible and that's why it had to be reissued really oh, a bit yeah. later because it was just, it had to be withdrawn from sale. Wow. And um, And that was
1: done pretty quickly, I imagine, after, oh, yeah. after it went out. Yeah.
2: And, and oh, I think that's fair it. enough. I mean, as a writer who's choosing to write about you know, real life, contemporary reality. You know, sometimes real events will happen and you yeah. just have to accept that fiction is not as important as mm-hmm. real life. I and mean, fiction helps us to cope with yeah. real life and to interpret it. That's mm-hmm. what storytelling is about. That's why we do it. But um, there comes a point where you have to say, yeah, OK, fair enough, I'll, I'll step back mm-hmm. here because actually real life has suddenly got more interesting and more relevant and more important. Mm-hmm. My second book... Uh, the other hand, is about uh, refugees, it's about mm-hmm. asylum seekers who come to Europe. Um, and it's the same thing. I'm trying to make real life interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to say, well, actually, you know, I think uh, sometimes our popular culture risks being very introspective, or very navel-gazing, and uh, almost this whole sort of genre of the format-based reality shows is trying to say that something extremely unnatural and unreal is real, that is reality mm. I don't believe that, you know I think that actually if you look outwards um, you see much bigger stories and there's no reason why they're any less entertaining or interesting and so with the other hand I was saying well, oh, and I, I, I deliberately go out when I write to say well what's the biggest story on earth at the moment you know, mm. What, uh, what is it impossible not to be interested by and then I try and write it but not as a big geopolitical story but as people, like Mm. the three of us are, talking Mm. around a table, because that's where life is. It's not in the abstract. And and it was amazing writing about immigrants, writing about refugees. I write about um, this girl who comes from Nigeria, who meets a woman uh, from London. Mm. Their their paths cross in in an incident that happens in Nigeria, where the Nigerian girl is running from uh, an incident that's happened in her village... And the English woman is on holiday on the beach. It's one of these very few places on earth where you can be on holiday right next to a disaster area. Wow. Really, yeah. turns out there's another one at the moment. I mean, this morning <laughs> in the in the Guardian there was a piece about a cruise liner that had docked um, on a beach um, in Haiti today. And this wow. is five days after the earthquake in Haiti. You know, cruise liners are calling in and uh, the guys are going off and having beach barbecues oh. in secure compounds, right, that are patrolled by armed guards, you know, literally hundreds of metres from people who are starving to death. And, you know, when, when people tell me that, I, that sometimes the plots of my books are exaggerated and couldn't happen <laughs> in real life, I sort of I point to things like this and say, well, actually it is. This is mm. what happens. This is the biggest story on earth. Mm. The fact that, that billions of people are in a world of pain mm. and at roughly one billion people are really lucky I mean we're really lucky to have been born on this side of the fence mm. that that's all there is it's just mm. luck we're mm. just fucking lucky and when we sort of gaze at our own navels and call this sort of singing dancing talent show type thing reality mm. you know that really bothers me that's the thing that annoys me and I think is a stretch and an exaggeration mm. actually you know if you if you look out, you see these huge stories playing out. And what I try and do as a writer is make them interesting again and make make those two stories collide again and again and again until they become one story that you mm. can tell as a novelist from beginning to end. Mm. Um, and so it makes sense. You and, know, that's what I do.
1: And without wanting to give anything away, Little B or the Other Hand, as, it, as it's known in, in this country, also touches on immigration because the girl's life gets uh, gets yeah. caught up with the with the mother's life, and yeah. uh, and she comes in and initially finds herself in an immigration centre, uh, which is sort of a detention centre in in the yeah. UK, and that's clearly something you, you must feel very passionate about.
2: Yeah, for sure. There's there's ten at the moment, and they're called immigration removal centres now. Um, They've been rebranded. Right? They were because uh, it's popular, right? To remove asylum seekers. Now. Oh God! Um, they used to be called immigration detention centres, and then a dozen years ago, they didn't exist at all, right? We didn't used to detain yes. asylum seekers. And then if you go back twenty years, you know, when I was a kid at school, uh, we used to love asylum seekers. I remember an asylum seeker. Every time one came over the fence, really, from from the yeah. so- former Soviet Union. Uh, they were lionized. They were, you know, the, every single person mm. that jumps the fence and gets onto our side mm. is proof of the superiority of our liberal values.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the fact they yeah. want to come heres yeah. yeah.
2: isn't that great? Compliment. They want to come here. Yeah. You know, mm. these are people with nothing that we want to help. Actually, nothing's really changed. I mean, you know, unless you read the Daily Mail, there's no reason to believe that we're flooded with asylum mm. seekers. I mean, asylum seeking runs every year at between two or three percent of net immigration to Mm. this country, right? And they are the poorest, most destitute, most desperate people. And what they're coming for um, is not a fortune. You know, the streets really aren't paved with gold here. They Mm. get 30 quid a week of Morrison's vouchers. And that's not something that you cross continents for and leave your family behind for. And they're literally, they're fleeing persecution. They're worried about being killed. Mm. And... So now we detain them, right? We remove them. And, you know, the government has a target and it bangs its drum every time it achieves its target. You know, our taxes are literally paying for people who have nothing at all to be deported back to places where they're going to be killed and we're meant to cheer. You know, yeah, yeah. 99 out of 100 people on the street would have no idea that these centres existed. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea at all until mm-hmm. I worked in one by accident. This was um, 11 years ago. I was a student. And um, I was working summer jobs, and it was really good. I, you would turn up every day um, at a sort of muster point. And it was called mm. champion employment. And you'd turn up, and you'd line up, and they would ask questions like, uh, can anyone drive a cherry picker crane? Or, you know, can anyone do bricklaying or whatever? (laughs) And you'd learn to lie really quickly because (laughs) if you were the last person to put your hand up, you got sent somewhere to be a kitchen porter. Uh, This is like the least skilled job that there was. But this was early days and I hadn't learned to lie. Mm. Um, So I got sent as a kitchen porter to um, Campsfield House Immigration Detention Centre just outside Oxford. Uh, And I spent three days there, like, washing dishes and serving, like... You know, mashed potatoes and diced carrots to asylum seekers, wow. you know, to refugees from uh, Sierra Leone, um, from the Balkans, uh, you know, from Nigeria, um, from, you know, all over the place, from Sri Lanka. Just got talking with them. You know, I was asking. Them, I thought it was a prison. I was like, "What have you all done?" Yeah, yeah. you know, and and why aren't you kind of more chained up? Yeah. <laughs> you know, sort of
4: in my innocent way. Like, Wear like, your uniforms. Yeah, it's
2: like if you're bad enough to be here, how come you? And it's like, oh no, we're not prisoners. We just can't leave. It's like, well, what have you done? Nothing. And I, I had no concept of what an asylum seeker was, yeah. or that these places existed, or why they had to be treated like this. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And there's no reason why anyone would have. You know, and that's why I wrote the book. Yeah. Because I think, well, you know, it is real. It is really happening. It's part of a bigger story about the haves and have-nots of mm. this world. And I'd really like to, to tell people about it. And that's what I do. I'm a storyteller. Mm. But, and, and so you find, you try to find a real story. And you try and make it exciting. Because mm. you know, reality is exciting.
4: Me. Dear Shift Run Stop, hello, it is Anna in San Francisco. I've been sitting here trying to think of a very, very San Francisco-y thing to tell you, but to be honest, it's just been miserable weather and I've been stuck in the house for the last few days playing PS3 with the cats. Well, not strictly with the cats. Um, I was playing, they were occasionally throwing themselves at the screen kind of full-frontally in their attempts to hunt and one day hopefully kill a real-life catamari. In fact, it's been raining for, like, weeks, which I know is nothing compared to your lots and lots of snow, but but the news reports here are no less alarmist about weather than they are in the UK, uh, more so, if possible. They shout, STORMS, in the trailers for the local newscasts uh, that they stick in the advert breaks before it. Join us at 11 and find out if it's raining where you are! Um, as if you wouldn't just look out the window if you wanted to know that. Thing is, in San Francisco, you need a seriously local weather report because the weather here is is insane. It's microclimates, It's it's... Batch it crazy. Um, Which is brilliant because I'm really British and when it comes to talk about the weather, I would happily do nothing but that. So the rain's going to pour down until February and then... uh it's going to be nice and balmy and hot until maybe July, at which point everyone's going to turn on their heaters and put on the jumpers and and um, until uh, September when suddenly it's going to be nice again. Or that's the that's the theory, anyway. Um, and even in July and August, it's cold in most of the city and the rest of it, it's really hot because, well, basically, there's this big mountain in the middle, Twin Peaks, and it's like 800 and something feet. Um, imagine this glass is, is Twin Peaks. Oh, no, that doesn't work. Um, OK, imagine this glass... <coughs> Is Twin Peaks, and uh, uh, my assistant here, Bobby, will be um, some clouds making cloud noises. Right, so the the cold air comes in off the sea, off the ocean, which is at sea level, um, in the form of a big cloud, and the cloud covers the whole west side of the city and the beach and the suburbs, and it hits Twin Peaks, and it meets the warmer air coming up from the bay, and it breaks up, and. And it skates away over and dissipates, that's not really dissipating, Uh, leaving the rest of the city in the sunshine. So you can, like I did the week after I arrived, uh, put on a strappy dress and flip-flops or a boy equivalent, whatever, um, um, because you're dying of hot, and leave the house, get on a bus, get off again half an hour later and find yourself surrounded by people who are like hunched up against the drizzle and, and walking fast to get where they want to go. It's just, it's not a logical way of conducting the weather, frankly, but you know, really interesting. Um, anyway I have to go cuz the cats are staring at the longingly at the PS3 remote and also I finally decided it's time for me to catch up on Lost before the final season starts here so I have uh, 5 seasons to watch and about 4 days so from California I uh, wish you a totally super awesome day and cheerio for now I'm a computer I'm on the short
0: way
2: anyone's guess what's going to happen uh, to everybody involved with storytelling, you know, mm. now. Um, from writers through to publishers through to retailers. Yeah, re- retailers are going down like nine pins. Mm. Um, before Christmas, I was in uh, Borders. <laughs> <laughs> remember Borders? Yeah, I remember Quite Borders? Order, I used yeah. to know like Borders. Borders. Borders were so good to me, right? For the record, like, when... Uh, when I was completely unknown, they supported me. And they supported me through my first yeah. and my second books, yeah. had me in to do events, put me at the front of their shop, yeah. just because they liked the stuff. Yeah. So like, when people say that big booksellers don't care and don't mm. do stuff, that's not true. No. And it's not. it wasn't true about Borders. It isn't true about Waterstones now. I mean, you go and talk to some of the booksellers on the floor in Waterstones, um, they're the most passionate people about books that you can meet. They're booksellers. They've gone to work for an enormous bookselling chain. It's totally logical. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got introduced to Cormac McCarthy by a bookseller mm-hmm. in Borders, mm-hmm. <laughs> so and, you know he's, he's become my favourite writer. So, mm-hmm. yeah, but I, I was there. I was in there before Christmas, and I was I was looking at what people were doing because mm-hmm. I'm quite interested by this. I was like, how do people choose books? You know, they walk into the shop, they turn left, they 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 look at books. They find a book that they like, then they get onto their iPhone and order it on Amazon because uh, that saves them yeah. carrying it home. And I, and I yes. and of course you would. I mean it's absolutely logical. Mm. And so book retailers are going to have to do something extremely fast mm. if they want to not just become a shop window for someone else that's going to yeah. to send the product. And that has huge yes. implications as a writer. Mm. And you've got to be asking yourself a really serious question about, well, you know, what what am I for? You know, mm. how am I uh, how am I helping mm. you know, and I, don't, I don't know the answer mm. um, for retailers and I don't know the answer for publishers but I know the answer for me as a writer so, you know, I really do need to think of myself as a storyteller I really do need to be telling a story that people want to listen to mm. and that story has to be so interesting now that it's going to get through over Mm. whatever channel I'm going to be working in in the next few years because I have no idea
0: If you consider yourself a storyteller and that's uh, more interactive and you enjoy getting that kind of um, two way thing going with with people that are reading your stuff um, have you considered writing games I suppose it appealed to me because I did a book which was kind of interactive in a sort of choose your adventure type way um and that seemed like a natural step for me to then go well I've really enjoyed doing this thing which is a story that goes in lots of different directions and people who give me feedback on it and stuff
1: enemy of and chaos learn, available in uh, all good <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: but yeah and it just made me and, it, and it's led me down that path now where I'm involved in games things and it's quite exciting and interesting in a storytelling way and in a philosophical way and lots of new things suddenly seem to be possible when you go oh well let's do that as a game instead of a story in them how would that work is that does that appeal to you at all yeah completely yeah
2: I, I I'm, I'm really into okay I'm into creative writing mm. and meaning uh and when it's creative is when you've when you've achieved change in the world that's mm. what you're creating and you mm. can be you can do creative writing by writing a shopping list you know mm. if it, you can literally write the greatest shopping list of all time <laughs> ever i don 't know what that would read you can change I, I like to change things mm. through the writing and if you write a game um if you enable people to just engage with the subject. I don't know, you have to give people license to step outside their own life for a mm. bit and make something that's totally immersive. And yeah, I think, I think games are, are probably it. And I think games where you, the, the player, are a protagonist and can make choices mm. are wonderful. And I don't, I don't know... Um, how far the technology has gone, you know. It lost me uh, when I was um, doing, uh, when I was programming BBC mm. Micros to to do uh, those sort of choose-your-own-adventure yeah, games. Yeah, yeah. And you know, if you um, if you decide to take the diamond, you know, mm. go go to page ninety-two. I don't know how much the concept of authorship is relevant in that environment where people can choose. Mm. Um, so I, I'm more interested in games where people are. Literally playing with each other, so you you you, Mm. um, almost have uh, competing dialogues. This is the game I would like to play, right? And with one of my stories, I'd like to say, well, this is my conversation between these two protagonists. Mm. Um, But if anyone can think of a better line, let's use that and see where that goes, where that takes the story. So Mm. the game is a game between the writer and the readers Mm. that evolves until the product is a novel, Mm. right? That you've created together and. Uh, rather than an experience that you would generate, and then people can, and then yeah. it's a product that people can play. Yeah, that interests yeah. me less than the idea of playing the game myself with mm. with readers.
3: I'm in computers, I'm in the mainframe, I'm in your headphones.
1: I do cry fairly easily but I don't usually cry <laughs> on the train that was yeah. quite a big moment for me Crying <laughs> <laughs> oh, <I know. laughs> on the train so, was sorry, difficult yeah. and then um, I lent it to my wife Rachel and she very rarely reads a book cover to cover in fact I think she'd probably say it was the first time that she'd actually sat down and couldn't stop reading it so at two in the morning she was cursing you saying yeah. I've got to finish this I'm so tired I've got to finish this book sorry
2: for all the chaos but it Oh, but I do really believe in that. I do believe in in getting a book the right length so people can basically read it in a day. Yeah. Um, the same way you would tell a story. If you yeah. if you mm-hmm. literally had to start at the beginning of the day and just say, "Well, this is the story," and I think if it takes long, if it takes past when the sun goes down to tell it, then it's probably
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know you could probably tell it in a shorter yeah. way. And I, I think that wasn't always true, um, but I mean. If you look at some of the great long novels of history, if you look at Dickens, I mean he could go on a bit. <laughs> but you know, that's because he was serialised. And and, mm. and there would be an instalment. Mm. And that's the family fair, actually, would yeah. read that. Yeah. You know, they would they would turn away from the piano for that evening. Yeah. Everyone played their own music. It was an amazing <laughs> world. <laughs> you know, the Victorians were amazing. They would buy sheet music and sit around mm. and yeah, and then they would read Dickens and there'd be an evening and you know, Our Mutual Friend, Chapter One. Mm. But we don't have that now, and we have to um, exist in a world where people you yeah, have other stuff to do and so, yeah, so i try and, I try and make it so it's one chunk mm. of, of story and it, it starts at the beginning and ends at the end and doesn't kind of doesn't waste your time really in mm. between the two i don't, I don't want to sort of bang on about the Technical aspects of the writing, but there's quite a lot of craft in the act of making mm. it short, compressing it yeah. And, yeah,
0: I always think that with your columns as well, and with a lot of the Guardian columns, you read it and think, "Oh, that's fun!" Like they just had a funny idea, but actually, it's not. It's that that, that it was fun and really well constructed, yeah. so that it has to fit within yeah. that number of words, you and it's done like, in a few hundred and that, and words. Really, which, yeah, yeah. Well, it's yeah.
2: such a nice thing to say. Thanks. Right? Well, yeah, the, the Guardian column. I'm pleased you mentioned It's 650 words yeah. exactly, and. Um, that's how much space there is on the page. I mean, mm. there, there literally is. You can't mm. write 670, because mm. then someone will take out a sentence. And, <laughs> and they do want that. Yeah, time. and they'll be really busy, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they, they've had to sub 20 articles yeah, that yeah. day. You're number 18. It's like five minutes to five. And they'll take out the thing that, only, that made your punchline in the next paragraph yeah. make sense. When I, when I started writing that column... Um, I wanted to write it because there are so many sort of parenting columns Mm. that are just morbid and maudlin. It's like, oh God, uh, (laughs) nappies again, just (laughs) dreadful. Come on, you volunteered to have kids. God, what did you think it was going to be like? You know, kids are brilliant and funny. And, you know, if you can write a column about children that isn't funny, then you've missed the point. I mean, children are hilarious. I, I love that real old-school sci-fi, you know, the, the sort of absolute craziness of someone like Philip K. Dick, who's really just writing about himself and the sort of multiple selves that he finds inside him Um, and then some of those really formal old science fiction writers like Asimov Mm. you know I was brought up on the um that I robot. Yeah, so doesn't he drive you, I you mad? I mean, I, I love him but he's it. so irritating. I love it. I love this sort of yeah. Okay, he, yeah, I mean, I, I do see your point. He can be really insufferable. Um, <laughs> but even his human
1: characters sound like robots. He's yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> was, terrible dialogue. He was born to write robots. He <laughs> he so right. Right.
2: Yeah. He's good at <laughs> robots. Really? But I like. Oh, bless him. He's got these beautiful conflicts. He, he invents his own laws. And and bless him, they're terribly simple, aren't they? <laughs> so they're like, oh, I Must not harm humans. Uh, I must not harm myself unless I need to to help a human. And then you know, I mean I don't know they. But when those rules do come into conflict, I love the I love the way the little robots' heads just totally melt, like <laughs> um, literally sometimes melt. And you know you see an allegory of. One's own life in their <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think I have many
1: more than three rules in my head, and they do frequently come into conflict. So, yeah, I've got a soft spot for Asimov. I think I liked him more before AI came out. That film um, marks, oh. I think, a particularly bad spot in, in mm-hmm. the world of sci fi. Yeah, It went on for about an hour longer than it needed to. <laughs> Oh, that I just kept well. thinking is it ending now no. talking about
0: punchable people like oh. fucking Hallie Hallie Joe Osmond um, or whatever his name is I was going to call him Hallie Bob Osmond after the comic and, um, and Jude Law's in it as well isn't he quite
1: I'm oh, quite yeah, a punchable I've forgotten that. Robot. The very punchable
2: G-Law. Yeah. <laughs> He's done some punchable films. <laughs> yeah. He's done a We've lot of punchable John sci-fi. Did you see Gattaca? He oh, was yeah, i forgot he was in it, actually. That's yeah, true. Yeah, pretty good. That's a film after my own heart. That's quite a short person. <laughs> I like the, uh, the idea of adding a few inches. I don't have anyone who would voluntarily donate three inches of their shin bones for me. I thought that was a particularly strong one. I want you
0: to Chris Cleave, it's been a pleasure to meet you and we've had a fascinating time, we've really enjoyed it so yes. thank you very much Thank you for coming it's been
2: my pleasure, thank you very
1: much for inviting me Thank you
2: Seriously, I've really enjoyed it
0: I'm you. Come shake your tail
2: at me